Now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up by Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there from Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in Jewish synagogues. John was with them there as a helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the sorcerer, see, for that was his name, that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stories and narratives that touch our hearts and make us wonder at the story, the great story, the big story, the thread that goes all the way through the Old and New Testament. We're so grateful and thankful. Father, we ask that you would just bless John today, that you would let his heart and his words be clear to each one of our hearts, and that we would see that the deceit of the enemy is not what you think, what we think it is, but it's in trickery and misunderstanding and confusion. So we ask that you would clear the way for clear thought. We love you, Father. We give you our hearts and we give you our minds today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Didi. You can be seated. So this is a true story. A few weeks ago, uh, there was an actual job posting on churchstaffing.com, a real job posting. Uh, how many of you are familiar with The Onion? Okay, I love The Onion. It has a Christian counterpart because everything has to have a Christian counterpart called the Babylon Bee, uh, which is actually pretty funny. Uh, this is not from the Babylon Bee. This is not from the Onion. This is an actual posting on churchstaffing.com. A church in Colorado was looking for a new senior pastor, and they thought uh, they had a, a unique approach, and I'll give them credit for that. It was definitely a unique approach uh, for the kind of senior pastor they were looking for. So I'm not making this up. This is the job posting on churchstaffing.com. This offer is going to be nothing like any other church job post. Our city in Colorado is asleep because the churches are asleep. People are hungry, but the spiritual food in the churches here are without flavor or life. The pastors are beautiful people and have good hearts, but we need some blockbuster sermons. 
Blockbuster with the capital B, sermons with a capital S. Blockbustersermons.com exists, by the way, which is hilarious. When you watch a sermon from Craig Rochelle, Andy Stanley, or Stephen Furtick, you feel like you were fed. Why can't we have that in church without playing videos from those pastors? And this is where it gets weird. Here's our concept. If a worship leader can take songs from Chris Tomlin and play it just like the album, and that is 100% accepted in the church, why can't you, as a pastor, copy Craig Rochelle's sermons word for word and add 10% of your own stuff? Meaning, let's give blockbuster sermons to the people. Actually says that with an exclamation point. Proven messages or hit sermons, then add 20% of your own stuff. So they upped the percentage of your own stuff halfway through the posting. We have everything needed for the church except the pastor. We have a great praise team. We have funds for advertising because that's all you really need at a new church is advertising. Oh, and then this is fantastic. Uh, Your salary is 90% of the tithes and offerings for the first year. Year two, three, and four, you'll get 50% of the tithes and offerings. Yeah, that is not how it works. And then it says, sorry, we can't pay your relocation fee. We'll explain more on the phone. An actual job posting at churchstaffing.com. When it hit Relevant Magazine, like they took it off immediately because God bless their hearts. They were trying really hard. All summer long, we've been studying the book of Acts because we want to get a refresher on like what is the church supposed to be? We're not doing this with any arrogance, like after 2,000 years in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we're going to be the ones who do it. Like, thank God Cornerstone came along. We'll get it. Everyone else is a bunch of mess-ups. That's not it. That's not not arrogance. But we're going back to the source to get a baseline for what on earth is the church supposed to be. Because I'll tell you, 2,000 years later, the church does some weird stuff. And we could probably have an open mic kind of confessional where we just go like person by person and talk about all the weird things that the church has done. And there's a lot of harm uh, that comes with that. The church does some super weird stuff. And our ambition as we're starting as a new congregation is to the best of our ability, we want to be faithful. We want to be a church that's faithful to the call of Jesus, faithful to his design for the church, which is his bride. And so we're going back to the beginning to get a picture of what that looks like. So the passage we just read has two scenes. Didi, you did a a lovely job, wherever you are, did a lovely job reading that text. Two scenes. The first scene is a description of the church in Antioch, and then the second scene is is Paul and Barnabas on the island of Cyprus doing this mission, and then sorcerers, and Gandalf was involved, very intense. Um, The thing about preaching through Acts is it's all stories. We're preaching stories. Paul, you know, I often reference Paul's letters where he's teaching I mean, there's clear instruction about how you, be, how you should behave, how you should believe. But when we're reading narratives, we learn indirectly. We have to make observations based on the story that, that we see. I had lunch with a leader that I respect, and I, and I was asking him, like, how did you become you? Like, what books did you read that helped you, like, figure out how to be so wise and flexible and adaptable? And he said he's become a student of biography. You know, lots of us read read uh, nonfiction stuff, like teaching you stuff, but he's just watching uh, other people who've lived well and lived wisely. And so when we read Acts, that's what we're doing. We're learning indirectly from the story of the early church and watching how they behave. And the whole study for us is going to be like a picture of what it means to be a healthy congregation, which may seem a little bit uh, unusual given the story. 
So uh, most of uh, our focus here is on the church in Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. It's just north of Syria. If you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, it's at the top right, about 15 miles inland. Uh, The church at Antioch uh, exploded from the beginning. Uh, When Saul began persecuting the church after Stephen's martyrdom, Christians spread all over from Jerusalem. Remember the story of the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch who went south and Philip shared the gospel with him and so the gospel went to Ethiopia. Well, some of the believers went to the city of Antioch and there they shared the gospel first with, with Jews in the synagogues, but they also shared the gospel with Greeks. And Antioch, was, it, was the right, it was the right time, and the message really hit home. And people came to trust and believe in Jesus, and they were seeing uh, lots of people converted to Christianity, becoming disciples of Jesus. And when the church in Jerusalem heard about this, they sent Barnabas, who's in this story, to go and check it out and strengthen them and encourage them. And Barnabas is this, is this amazing guy, this encourager. But there's a story of Saul, Saul who had been persecuting the church in Jerusalem, hears what's happening in Antioch and other places and gets on the road and he's got permission from the, from the temple leaders to hunt down the church and to systematically arrest people and bring them to prison because they believed in Jesus. And Saul, on his way to Damascus in Syria, had this incredible moment where Jesus confronts him. And he's blinded on the road, and and Jesus says, I'm the one you've been persecuting. And Saul has a a radical transformation, goes from being the persecutor of the church to to a preacher of the gospel, to a propagator of the Christian faith. Barnabas, up in Antioch, hears what happened to Saul. And even though everyone else was running the opposite direction of this guy, they were very slow to embrace him as a brother in Christ. Barnabas went from Antioch uh, to where Saul was, and he brought him to the church in Antioch. And Barnabas was his advocate and his buddy, and he's like, no, this guy's with me. He's okay. And the Scripture tells us that for a year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church in Antioch, and it was there that Saul was really nurtured as a young believer in Jesus. It was there that they really uh, were were given a a strong impression of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in community, and the church at Antioch was really, really special. I want to reread verse 1 that Didi read. You know, when you read names in the Bible... Maybe you've tried to like read through the New Testament and you were really ambitious, you're going to do it in like a month or something like that, and you open Matthew chapter 1 and the entire first chapter is names and you think, this is not going to go very well. Uh, this, this, this text begins with some names, but the names tell us a story that matters about the church at Antioch. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, you got this handful of list of the names of, of early leaders in the church. Let me tell you about them. Barnabas was previously named Joseph. He came to know Jesus. He was a wealthy man, and he, he gave away all his goods to the church. And they, na- they renamed him, not Joseph, but Barnabas. That means son of encouragement. What God is doing in that guy is so encouraging. Let's rename him. That's Barnabas. You've got Simeon called Niger. What this is saying in plain English is like Simeon called black. Simeon the black guy. So in this church, we've got an an African Gentile who relocated to Antioch and came to know Jesus. And Simeon called Niger was a leader in the early church in Antioch. And he was was a black guy. You've got Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in Libya. He's a North African. 
You've got, uh, we don't know where Simeon was from, but we've got at least two African leaders in the early church. Lucius of Cyrene is a Libyan. You got Manaean, who grew up in the household of Herod. Herod was this sub-king under the authority of Caesar, who was like a traitor to the Jewish people, ruling over Palestine. Manaean was the guy who grew up around this kind of power, grew up around the family that was hunting down Jesus' followers from the time Jesus was a little kid until just a couple of chapters ago in this story. You got Manaean, who was around power, whose name means comforter. And he was just, he was a part of the early church, a leader in the early church. You got the son of encouragement in Barnabas, you've got two Africans, you've got Manaean, the comforter, and then you've got Saul, who was a persecutor, who's now a preacher of the gospel. And this is the composition of the church in Antioch. It's a multiracial, multi-ethnic church united in Jesus, seeing tremendous fruit as they're living out together a gospel identity and a gospel calling. And if we just take these couple of verses and and look at the behavior of the church in Antioch, we see three cultural distinctives that tell us about the nature of the early church, certainly the early church in Antioch. The first was this. The, The church in Antioch had a culture of encouragement. They had a culture of encouragement. Think about Manaean, the comforter, Barnabas, the encourager. A church that's multiracial, multi-ethnic, where there are, are, are people who were previously on the other side of politics, who are in groups of people that didn't get along well, you need a community of encouragers and comforters. And holding them together was that, that culture. They had a culture of encouragement. How else could someone like Paul, who previously persecuted the church, have been nurtured to maturity? There was a culture of encouragement. Second thing is they had a culture of prayer and worship. And so the text tells us that while they were praying and fasting, while they were, they were fasting and they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit spoke, not to Paul alone up on the mountain by himself, but the Holy Spirit spoke to the church, gathered together, worshiping and fasting. And after the Holy Spirit said to the church, set apart Saul and Barnabas for this really important stuff I'm going to have them do, again, they fasted and they prayed and they sought the heart of God. They had a culture of encouragement. They had a culture of worship and prayer. And finally, they had a culture of development. The church in Antioch was known as being a, like a hub for like launching prophets and pastors and teachers and missionaries. Saul and Barnabas were commissioned as missionaries and ordained in the ministry in the church at Antioch, and then they were sent out. Elsewhere in Acts, we get this picture that they're just churning out leaders. They're a development powerhouse. Something amazing was going on in Antioch. Last year when we were thinking about church names, and if you don't know, we're just like 27, 28 weeks into being a church. We launched in January of this year. It's just been amazing to see what God has done, but we realized we've got to give this church a name, which you know, is a hard thing. When we were naming our children, I was trying to think of every possible way a kid on the playground could make fun of the name that we gave our child. So like I'm going through like their first initials, what does that spell out? I found lots of names that do not work. I think they're going to be stuck with this thing. We're going to be stuck with this name as a church. And so it's got to be good. It's got to be something we like. And I love the story of the church in Antioch. And I thought, man, Antioch, that's a, that's a cool, that's a powerful name. Wait, is it Antioch? Antioch? Nope, can't do that one. It's going to be too confusing. But I love the culture of the church in Antioch. Multi-ethnic, multi-racial, a culture of encouragement, a culture of worship and prayer, a culture of development. I think, yes. If we, could like, if we could like form our church after, after a, a preceding church, think that would be it. That would be awesome if those things could be said about us. 
I'd love for Cornerstone someday to be known as being a culture of encouragement and a culture where we launch people, whether it's in conventional senses in ministry or people just leveraging their vocation, they're trained and they're equipped, and we launch them to do kingdom work through all the various channels of society. One of the vital aspects of church ministry, but like probably the least sexy, is, is doing work with governance and with boards. And if you've paid attention to the news, the uh, the church has gotten some really bad press for people behaving in shameful, shameful ways in the last couple of months. Both in the, the Protestant world and the Catholic world, the church has been, uh, not, not universally, but, but many parts of the church have behaved so foolishly and, and wickedly at times. I think, man, this is a time when oversight and governance matter, where the church needs to be not centered around one personality or a couple of personalities, but, but centered around a, a body that's discerning together what it means to live wisely and missionally in our time. And so Cornerstone has a board, and as a board, we've been working through these questions uh, that are pretty integral, like what is it that God has called us to do? We call this our ends, E-N-D-S, our ends. What is the good that we as a, a church, as a community, are contributing to God's kingdom, contributing to the world? And as we've been kicking around different ideas of the things that like this is what we're called to do, uh, man, these three cultural distinctives, directly and indirectly, uh, come to the fore. But for us, explicitly, this idea of having a culture of development, we know that we want to be a church that launches people. We want to be a church that multiplies, that is, never becomes a megachurch in a conventional sense. We've got thousands and thousands of seats, but a church that launches uh, many churches and relaunches churches that have died and launches new pastors and new worship leaders and new people in doing ministry through their vocation. We want to be a church that multiplies, and the church in Antioch gives us this great picture of that. So this is Antioch. They're worshiping, they're praying, the Spirit speaks, set apart Saul and Barnabas, and it leads us to scene two of the story that gets a little interesting they lay hands on them, they send them out, they go to the island of Cyprus. First they land at Salamis, which I hope is the home of Salami. I don't know if they got to enjoy any, but I hope that that's true. Tradition says that Barnabas was later martyred in Salamis, where he's, he's from Cyprus. I don't know if that's true, uh, but what he started, he saw through. Saul and Barnabas make their way across the island to this place called Paphos, and there they meet the Roman consul is like a governor of the island of Cyprus. And this governor has this, has this buddy who's always whispering in his ear. The text was super confusing. They've got like Bar Jesus, that's an interesting name. You've got Elemis, it's one and the same. I don't know what it means to be a Jewish sorcerer, uh, but we get the sense this is not a good thing to be. This is a person who's opposing the work of God. And he's whispering, it's kind of like, um, oh, what's the, what's the character in Lord of the Rings? I, I'm reading Fellowship of the Ring right now, and I can't help but reference it in, like, every conversation. So don't have lunch with me until, like, the new year, okay? And I'll get on to Harry Potter or something. But, uh, but there's, this, there's this sorcerer who's trying to influence the Roman governor. And he's deeply threatened by the presence of Saul and Barnabas because he recognizes their spiritual authority. And opposition arises when there's a shifting in power dynamics. And Elymas, the Jewish sorcerer, recognizes that there's a threat to power here, and so he opposes them. And Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, do something that's a little bit different than their normal style. Uh, they, they confront it directly, and the text is, is really intense. Didi read, you're a son of the devil, which if Didi ever runs for office, like, we're going to hold on to that sound bite and, like, use it against you if it ever goes south. Uh, he's a son of the devil, my goodness. 
It's probably worth noting uh, that this is not Paul's usual style. Some of you went to OSU and you know Preacher Bob. Uh, Paul is not a Preacher Bob. Paul's style was typically not to get a soapbox and a megaphone and just yell at people, you're a son of the devil. Paul was recognizing this is a unique situation. There is a legitimate spiritual threat And Paul takes it on. And the Holy Spirit in Paul, Paul is strong in God, defeats the dude and he blinds him, which is just so great that Paul, who had been blinded by Jesus for persecuting him, now was an instrument of blinding someone else who was opposing the work of God. And as a result of this demonstration of the Spirit, Sergius Paulus comes to believe. Crazy story. Cool story. But all of this gives us a picture indirectly of what the church, the early church was like, and certainly the church in Antioch. And here's what's striking to me about the entire text taken together. The behaviors of the church in Antioch, and then Paul and Barnabas being sent out, um, gives us a glimpse of the kinds of disciples that the early church was producing. Hearing this story and watching it, we get a sense of this is the caliber of apprentices of Jesus that the early church was churning out. People who went courageously on mission. People who were able to stand up against spiritual opposition and be on the other side victorious. People who were worshiping and fasting and nurturing the gifts of the Spirit and the, and the calling of the church in one another. And we're seeing amazing, amazing fruit in ministry. Paul and Barnabas give us a glimpse of the kind of disciples of Jesus that the early church was producing. And it's men and women of courage and wisdom and humility and discernment and power. And I will tell you, it is way, way, way easier to plagiarize blockbuster sermons than to grow men and women who are mature and wise and godly and courageous and powerful in Christ. It would be so much easier to just show video of someone else's sermons and hope that that does the trick. It's so much easier to do that than to try to grow humans who are well in Christ and who are on mission in Christ. It's easier to put on an emotionally stirring worship service than to do the hard work of sanctification, of discipleship, of apprenticeship, of of becoming the students of Jesus and learning from Him how to live like Him and live together in community. But this thing, this idea of growing humans is the essential work of the church. Jesus, in His parting words, called the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I promise I'm with you always to the very end of the world. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the boss. I'm the ruler. I'm in charge. And here's what the ruler's telling you to do. Go find people who will be students of me, who will be disciples. Teach them all the stuff I taught you. Teach them to obey me, and I'm going to be with you in the middle of it. And I have to think the church in Antioch was experiencing the delight of God, fulfilling the, the instruction and the invitation of Jesus. An author named Neil Cole said, if your church is not good at making disciples... It doesn't matter how good it is at anything else. If your church is not good at making disciples, it doesn't matter how good you are at anything else. Um, There's a a book, if you want to get in trouble, uh, read the book Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon. A couple college professors, brilliant guys, they were pastors. 
This is a book that's going to anger you and delight you and get you in trouble if you start quoting to other people, which I'm about to do. So uh, Howard Wass wrote this at the end of one of his chapters I want to share with you. The, the book was written in, in the mid-'80s. Reagan was president. Uh, a little context there. Howard Wass said, Some time ago when the United States bombed military and civilian targets in Libya, a debate raged concerning the morality of that act. One of us witnessed an informal gathering of students who argued the morality of the bombing of Libya. Some thought it was immoral, others thought it was moral. At one point in the argument, one of the students turned and said, Well, preacher, what do you think? I said that as a Christian, I could never support bombing, particularly bombing of civilians as an ethical act. That's just what we expected you to say, said another. That's typical of you Christians, always on the high moral ground, aren't you? You get so upset when a terrorist guns down a, a child in an airport, but when the president tries to set things right, you get indignant when a few Libyans get hurt. You know, you have a point, I said. What would a Christian response to this be? Then I answered right off the top of my head. A Christian response might be that tomorrow morning, the United Methodist Church announces that it's sending a thousand Christian missionaries to Libya. We've discovered its fertile field for the gospel. We know how to send missionaries. Here's at least a traditional Christian response. You can't do that, said my adversary. Why, I asked. You tell me why. Because it's illegal to travel in Libya. The president won't give you a visa to go there. No, that's not right, I said. I'll admit that we can't go to Libya, but it's not because of the president. We can't go there because we no longer have a church that produces the kind of people who can do something this bold but we once did. We can't go there because we no longer have a church that produces people who can do something this bold, but we once did. We would like a church that again asserts that God and not nations rules the world, that the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar, and that the main task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. We don't produce people like that now, but we once did. Texts like this are hard in terms of personal application. Greg and Wendy, what are you going to do with this today? I don't know. But sure, give us a, a, a calling to a church. When the church was praying, the church was worshiping, the Spirit spoke to the church. I don't know about everybody. I don't know about the Church of Midtown. I love the Church of Midtown. don't know about City Church, Life Church, Ethos. I love all of those people. But for the people of Cornerstone, what this means for me and what I hope for us is that we will be the kind of people who embrace the long, slow, hard work of apprenticing ourselves to Jesus and learning together how to be well from Jesus and how to be wise learning at the feet of Jesus. This is excruciating. It's way easier to just show, you know, blockbuster sermons. It's way easier to, to, to give away cars and to do hype stuff just to cram people in the building and get numbers. I would rather us stay small forever and be faithful to Jesus than be enormous. And we don't know him. We're not walking for him. We're not living for him. It's an invitation of discipleship and apprenticeship. And it's slow. It's hard. And it's not sexy. And we're in each other's lives. And it gets, it gets complicated. But this is the invitation of Jesus. He said, go and do that, and I'll be with you in the middle of it. Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, come, come to me, all of you who are weary 
and burdened because life is so hard. Life, even when life is good, life is hard. Life is complicated. There are diagnoses. There are friendships that are strained. There are ethical questions that are difficult to answer. There's sleeplessness. There's dissatisfaction in work. There's just the boredom, you know, that sometimes comes with affluence, and we're largely a middle-class congregation. There's a sense of, of hopelessness. What is the purpose of all of this? Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you'll find rest for your soul. Jesus longs for us to be his students. Be delighted for us to be his apprentices. And I just want to say as a community, I don't know how to do this. We're taking an earnest swing at, at, at trying this together. I can't make any promises. I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, we're all broken. I'm deeply broken. But this is our intention to go the long, slow way of following in the steps of Jesus and betting everything on his faithfulness to say, I'm going to be with you. So if you want to be an apprentice of Jesus, there's an invitation. It's way bigger than an apprentice group or any program that a church puts on. It's an invitation to follow him. It's an invitation, as Bonhoeffer said, to come and die. And in dying, find life in him. That's our ambition as a church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm so keenly aware what we are made of. We're broken and flawed and fickle. We don't love you with our whole heart. We're stop and start. We, we have other things that compete for allegiance to you. And so at times in reading a scripture, a passage like this that, that shows the church as, you know, through rose-colored lenses, it's idealistic. It can feel like shaming or like we're getting beaten over the head because we can't do this. And we can't do this. So pray, come Holy Spirit, move in Christ's church. Speak to us. Move in power. Confront us with our idolatry and our sin. Invite us into a life that costs us everything but gains us everything in Christ. Help us to notice one another and to love one another. Help us to challenge each other by being truth tellers, by following each other like, like the shepherd who left the 99 to go after the one. May we be that kind of community. And I pray, Lord Jesus, not for the, for the glory of any of us, not for the name of Cornerstone. May our name be stricken from the books of history, but the name of Christ Church be honored and held in high esteem. Help us, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, for the seeker in the room who doesn't yet know you, I pray that you'd call their name and they'd respond to your invitation of apprenticeship. For the disciples in the room who are bored out of their minds from continuing to just do church, I pray that you would wake us up. And for all of us, I pray that you'd follow us, that you'd call us into a more costly and more precious discipleship and there experience the presence of Jesus the Messiah. So we share in your table, Lord, come in power, pour out your spirit on the bread and wine and make it be something so much more than that so that we can be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood, one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. In Jesus' name, amen.